Coming up on today's show, the chaos in Congress in the United States. What's going on and how will it be solved? We will find out. A new report put out by the Eurasia Group says, you know, Canada needs to be on guard to the radicalization we're seeing in the United States. We're also going to have a conversation about the Kraken variant. Not the variant itself, but why are we calling it the Kraken variant? The situation that is paralyzing U.S. politics this week has been described many ways. None of them flattering. Um... If you've been following along, Kevin McCarthy has lost 11 consecutive votes now over three days in his attempt to become Speaker of the House. Uh, You need to win a majority. He can't. Comes up just short. Um, There's 20 Republican members of the House of Representatives that just refuse to throw their support behind him. And this has gone on for 11 times. It is an unprecedented streak of failure. And there appears to be no end in sight. Um... They're going to resume the process today. I don't know what the resolution is. I don't see any signs of that. But we're going to get some insight with Lauren Bell, who is a scholar of the U.S. Congress at Randolph-Macon College in Virginia. Lauren, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. You know, when we talk about this situation and how remarkable and extraordinary it is, uh, it really is. We haven't seen something like this in, in what, a 100 years? Uh, more than that. You At, at this point, now that uh, we're on vote number 12, you have to go back to... Uh, pre-U.S. Civil War, so pre-1861, uh, uh, to, to see a speakership election that's taken this many ballots. Unbelievable. Has there ever been, I mean, in recent modern history, anything remotely close to this? I mean, the closest in time would be 1923. Yeah. Uh, it was similar where you had a, a group of Republicans, although it was progressive Republicans back then, who wanted some concessions from what they considered to be the, the moderates or the establishment. Yeah. Um, but it's it's been a century, right? Uh, now, for, for an outside observer watching this, it, it's kind of difficult to understand what... <laughs> What's going, why this yeah. is happening? You know, it's that old definition of insanity. You keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Why do they keep yeah. doing it? Nothing seems to change. Right. Well, I think the, the challenge right now for Republicans is that it's not clear if it isn't McCarthy, um, who it would be. And of course, the, the majority party in Congress has the, um, requirement to establish leadership of yeah. the chamber. And that's done by a majority vote. And right now you've got these 20 holdouts who are unwilling to, to bend. And so it's not clear what the alternative is. That's the question. Like, there's not an outside entity that will step in and, and arbitrate things. They're, they're, they have to sort this out themselves, right, one way or another. That's, that's right. Uh, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, makes Congress the... Um, the exclusive judge of its own rules, and these are the House rules, that they must elect a speaker before they can do any other business, including swearing in members. So right now we have 434 members elect, but we don't have any members of Congress. Uh, And so, uh, yeah, this this is something that has to get sorted out before anything else can go on. And we keep hearing about negotiations and, and trying to work to a resolution. Obviously, no progress over three days. Do you anticipate anything different happening today or whenever, you know, however long this goes? Well, of course, I mean, I don't have any uh, special insight that, that others don't have, except to say that I've, I've chatted with some friends and colleagues who are um, involved in Republican politics on the Hill, and, and they tell me they don't, see that McCarthy has the votes. And frankly, 
he's been losing votes over time, right? As the vote, as the number of votes has gone on, he's gone from being able to get 203 votes to, to now 200 votes. That doesn't suggest that there's been a lot of progress um, in terms of these negotiations. And so I, I don't necessarily see anything different. Um, you know, I don't know what he would have to promise. He yeah. has essentially capitulated to he all has. of the requests and demands, and that hasn't moved any votes. The other thing that I haven't seen a lot of people talking about, and I've wondered, is the Democrats. They, you know, they have more than enough votes to put McCarthy over the top if they wanted to and end this the next time it goes to a vote, and they could sort of short-circuit everything that the 20, um, you know, militant never-McCarthy voters are doing. They could just sort of cut them out, give him the support that he needs to get in. What's their role in all of this? They seem content to just sit back and watch the chaos. I think for now that's that's right. Um, you know, the Republicans in the House of Representatives, and, and in fairness, the Democrats as well, there's not been a lot of bipartisanship or, or inter-party um, willingness to work together over the last several Congresses. And I don't think that the Democrats see that it would be to their advantage to um, help to elect McCarthy speaker. Now, if this goes on for several more rounds of voting or several more days or weeks even, I could see them being willing to talk about a compromise candidate, somebody that might be acceptable to to the Democrats. But again, I don't know who that would be. Um, you know, the flip side is the, the holdouts could simply... Um, you know, cast a, a vote for Hakeem Jeffries, right? And they could end it as well, right. but, yeah. but they're not going to be willing to do that either. Um, so I think for now, frankly, the Democrats don't have much of a role. Um, and I think, you know, the Democrats are very wary about taking responsibility for putting the Republican leadership in place. Ultimately, uh, it, it paralyzes at Congress, for sure, but U.S. government in a lot of ways. I mean, this is a key plank in the way the whole operation op works, and nothing can happen, right? Like, nothing can take place in Congress until this is resolved. Correct. As I mentioned, we don't even have members of the House of Representatives right now. They we don't exist, yeah. Elect. They, they don't exist, right? What, what I would say is, at, at this point, I'm not terribly concerned. It's pretty typical for a new Congress to, to be gaveled in on January 3rd, elect its leadership, and then actually to recess for the rest of the month. Um, you know, Congress doesn't typically do a huge amount in January, even in a new Congress. Um, it, it, there's lots of reasons for that, not the least of which is members are all moving offices. New members are gearing up. They, they are hiring staff. So at this point, um, yes, we can say government is paralyzed. On the other hand, Congress doesn't typically do a lot right, right now. But if this goes on for multiple weeks and starts getting into February and March, which is really the height of um, a new Congress's kind of legislative gear up period, um, then I would start to have a lot more concern about the impact on on legislating and governing. It is fascinating to watch. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for your insight. I appreciate it. So, following up on that discussion about what's going on in the U.S. Congress right now and the inability to elect a speaker um, as the Republicans try and sort out the impasse down there, I've said it a million times here on this show. We've talked about it a lot. I've said Canada is not the United States. We do not have that that level of political division, that toxic political climate that has invaded the United States. I mean, that system is just failing. It's it's not working anymore for, for anybody. Um 
Canada is not that, but I have also said I think we need to be really, really careful that we don't become that. And there are signs that we've taken some steps down that path, I think. And being right next to that giant, we pick up on the trends. We pick up on that environment. It spills over the border. Everything does. Um, and a new report by the Eurasia Group focuses on just this phenomenon. So to get into the details of that, we're going to chat now with Evan Solomon, who is publisher of G-Zero Media and a senior management team of Eurasia Group. Uh, Evan, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time today. Oh, it's so great to be here. Happy New Year. Yeah, same to you. So let's start with this report overall. It's the Eurasia Group's annual top risk report, correct? That's sort of where the starting point is? Yeah, every year, uh, you know, we put out a big report for seeing what the top risks of the year are. And, you know, look, this year, rogue Russia is our number one risk. Sure. How a humiliated Russia, you know, is, is, is turning dangerous. China, maximum Xi, the power of Xi Jinping, the most powerful leader since, you know, basically Mao. That's our number two. But, yeah, on the list, Canada makes it a bit. Um, I also found it interesting, and uh, we'll get to the Canada in a second, but artificial intelligence and the potential impact that might have on society. That's number three on your top risk list. Yeah, Ian Bremmer, who's the founder of, of Eurasia Group and, and one of the authors of it, likes to say aging autocrats and tech bros are basically the most dangerous uh, disruptors and risks of the year. And what we call the weapons of mass disruption. Right. And what, you know, look, this is big tech. We all know about it. And Eurasia Group sort of sees big tech and, and the, especially U.S. big tech as exporting the ability to disrupt our economic systems, either by actually disrupting it or by undermining trust in it. And, and those are met, and, and with the things like chat, GPT, people have checked that out. You know how, like, basically a bot can write things yeah. that pass what's called the Turing test, which is the test where a computer sounds like a human. This coming AI is going to accelerate this massively. Which means the reality, which is already um, incredibly flexible and not shared, will get even more confusing. Yeah, look, AI. Folks, uh, if you're not into AI, to follow it, follow it, because its power to do good things is going to be key. Yes. But its yeah. power to disrupt is growing exponentially, and it's and we are at a real turning point this year. Now, uh, for the sake of context, in this report, when you talk about your top ten risk, Canada doesn't make the top ten risk list for instability, right? I mean, we're not at that level yet. No, no, we're not there at all. But look, the U.S. does. Our, yeah. the, the eighth biggest risk is what we call the divided states of America. Look, we're all looking at whether we're, it doesn't really affect us, but look at the, the crazy mess that's going on in the U.S. Yeah. right now where it's taken 11 votes just to elect the Speaker of the House. Now, people in Canada are like, well, who cares about the Speaker? Our Speaker basically is like a disciplinarian and telling MPs to be quiet. In the U.S., folks, just remember... The Speaker of the House is the third in line to be president, president, vice president, speaker. The speaker is an unbelievably powerful position, controls legislation, controls committees, controls the agenda. So this is a much more consequential uh, position than in Canada. And they can't. And, and Republicans, 
This should be a one-vote issue. Yeah. They have not had this many votes since the Civil War. So nope. this is a shambles inside that party. It's crazy. It really is. And it, and I think you're, you're so right to point out the fact that uh, it's just an, uh, the latest illustration of how that system is faltering, if not flat-out failing. You did produce three sub-reports, and you talk about Canada and that influence and that kind of political climate we see in the U.S. and how it influences us. Talk about that. Look, it's first of all, people like to say there's polarization and division in the U.S. We've seen it, of course, but we're getting it here, too, whether it's on the right or on the left. On on the right side, we've seen, you know, look, we've seen the People's Party. We've seen uh, some of the big protests at borders and, and in the nation's capital uh, in Ottawa. And on the left, you've seen the polarization around who's taking vaccines or not. The Eurasia Group report says some of that dysfunction is starting, that people like to look at the U.S. and say, boy, we don't have it here. Yeah. It's coming to Canada. And it's and look, it's, it's happened in all our, whether on a provincial level or on a national level. And it's not just about, look, healthy disagreement. Healthy disagreement is good. But a lack of trust in our systems has led to a kind of a tearing down of some of the fundamental issues, sometimes a distrust of election processes, and that's going to lead to divisions in our country. Listen, this is a country that, you know, we've almost been ripped apart from just our French-English divides, but now you, you see it with senses of Western alienation. That's growing as well. So, look, don't get too comfortable. Divisions happen everywhere around the world, weaponized by lots of things, and they're happening here too, and it's happening at an accelerated rate. And Canadians have to decide, look, it's great to disagree, but what is the big picture? Are we trying to stay united as a country, productive as a country? And those are decisions that, no matter where we are in the political spectrum, we've got to have a, at least a humane dialogue to be able to talk to each other. You're so right. Uh, and that resolution and how we get there, we'll talk about in a second. First of all, what causes the division? I know you talk about social media, you talk about some of the alternative media, things like that. There are people that will exploit that division for personal gain and amplify it, strengthen it, and make it worse. I mean, we get caught in a cycle, and that is largely a product of the United States, too, that trickles up here. We follow along. Where does it come from? Is it our leaders? Is it our media? Is it social media? How do we, how does it, as you say, continue to grow? Listen, it's a stew. First of all, look, it's been a hard time. We've got hyperinflation rates that we haven't seen in a generation. We've just come off some of the you know most invasive lockdowns of our lifetime. We've come off a global pandemic and into what could be a global recession. That makes you know people angry, and that makes people, for, for genuine reason, feel like they're looking for answers. Housing prices are out of control. There's lots of pressures on businesses and governments who are experienced debt. Look at in Alberta, you've had the the bust now boom cycle with the price of oil. Mm-hmm. It's hard to ride those that buck and horse every day for households who, you know, you're broke, you're losing a job, then you're getting a job. So people are frustrated. They don't know who to trust. That is weaponized by both political parties and, of course, we know by the media, right? Chasing dollars themselves. And, and so you get this climate where the extremes are looking to benefit from people's pain and people are genuinely finding out and i think there's a the media's got to look at itself politicians ever there's a trust 
deficit. And when you don't have trust, you turn to other places for answers. And not all of those places, look what's happened with the quote-unquote QAnon stuff in the U.S., not all these things have uh, have your best interest, the country's best interest in mind. They could be conspiratorial things, and, and we've seen those things. And again, it's easy to talk down to people. That is the worst thing to do. You got to listen. And I know, like when I covered the protests, remember, you got to listen to people. You got to hear people out. And if we stop, once you start hearing, stop hearing and start yelling at people, uh, man, it, Whatever, however great you think your community is, it starts breaking down real quick. Yeah, and you know what the thing is, Evan? You, you come to learn pretty quickly that we actually agree on a lot more than we disagree on, but we only focus and we're made to focus on those divisive issues, the things that we don't agree upon, when there's so much more common ground that we could spend our time talking about. Look, I like, like the thing about a democracy is we should be able to disagree. Like, I don't want just to sit in a kumbaya circle and agree. The beautiful thing about Canada is you and I can disagree about hockey teams, about politics, about tax, about trade, about war, about anything. But we don't attack each other. I'm not coming after your family. The cops aren't coming to arrest me. We have to protect our civil liberties and protect our right to disagree in a civil way. That's what talk radio is all about. That's what you do every day. And that's awesome. It's societies that lose that, you know, storming the Capitol buildings, burning things down, putting people in prison, government overreach on whatever side you're on in the political spectrum. These are red lines we got to be vigilant about. And that's the risk we face, right? If we continue on the path and we don't have some sort of intervention, we end up inevitably, you can see that you know we're on the same path that was followed in the U.S., I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, eventually you end up in the same place, right? That's the risk we're facing. Yeah, and look, we've got a pretty great country here, and we've yeah. got some great opportunities. But doesn't mean we should pretend that it's all roses. People are, there's a lot of frustrated people. There's a lot of people with real pain here. There's got to be better answers. And, and these are real challenges. This is one of our top risks. The risk is the very thing we love gets worse. The risk is our kids have a worse life than we do. The risk is that the community that we love has a lower quality of life, not a higher quality of life. And so we're all fighting in our own way to increase our quality of life. But let's make sure that we regard each other as opponents, not enemies. And when you see the other side as an enemy, you're starting to rip apart the very thing you're trying to save. And I think that's what this whole Top Risks is all about. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. Evan, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. We're going to get into a conversation here. This came out uh, of our discussions yesterday. If you remember, we got into a uh, discussion about the new uh, COVID variant that people are starting to pay attention to. Um, there's a, I think we were up to about 21 detected cases in Canada as of yesterday. Maybe it's changed since then, but it's really causing, you know, a lot more, um, attention to be paid to it in places like the Northeastern United States. It's in a, a couple of dozen countries around the world, so people keeping a close eye on it. But uh, we talked to infectious diseases about it, experts about it yesterday, the Kraken variant, right? And we talked a bit about, you know, it's a good reminder that that virus is still out there and there's things we need to be aware of and paying attention to. Um, but a lot of people were asking, what, where did that name come from? The Kraken variant? I mean, if you, I'm sure you know, based on the Seattle Kraken and prior to the Caribbean and stuff, it's a, it's a mythical sea creature, right? Like a giant squid or a giant octopus or something like that. The Kraken. Um, so why, why are we now naming COVID variants after mythical 
sea monster. So let's find out. We're going to chat with Dr. T. Ryan Gregory, who is a professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Guelph. Uh, Dr. Gregory, thanks for being here. I appreciate your time. No problem at all. First of all, the Kraken variant, as it's come to be known now, is that is that the official name or is that just a nickname that we've assigned to this variant? That is absolutely just a nickname. The official names sort of are either at the level of Omicron, the Greek letter naming system that okay. the World Health Organization has been using, or uh, the XBB15, which is a uh, formal technical designation for that specific variant. So those are the two official names, and Kraken really is just a nickname. Okay, so we haven't moved away from that Greek alphabet system then. That, that still is in place. That's still in place, and in fact, we haven't had any new names assigned using that system for the past year. So it stopped essentially after the first Omicron, and everything since has been called Omicron. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Now, this is a, um, it's a nickname, but it, it's not the only um, mythical monster nickname, right? I mean, that seem, is that a convention? How does Because there's more than one. It's not just the Kraken, right? No, it's not the, it's not the first one. The very first nickname uh, that was assigned, you know, it basically in the in the Twitter sphere uh, was by someone else, um, and it was the BA two seven five variant, which was nicknamed Centaurus. And so once we started dealing with this whole, you know, you probably heard the term variant soup yeah. or swarm or cloud. Uh, you know, there's something like six hundred and fifty different technically designated uh, Omicron lineages out there right now. So it becomes really unwieldy to kind of talk about them only with those technical names. So once we started dealing with trying to convey, you know, these small subsets of variants are ones we're talking about, um, what can we call them? Your only choices were Omicron, right? You know, everything's still Omicron or those, that, that alphabet soup. So, um, part of the thought was, well, we've got a Greek naming uh, Greek letter naming system. We've had one named already, Centaurus, which is you know a constellation and also a Greek mythological creature. What about just using going down the list of you know those kinds of names? Uh, Kraken's not a Greek mythological creature. It's sort of one of the first that isn't, but you know people do associate it with Clash of the Titans and things like sure, that. Sure, absolutely. It's, it's just something that people recognize, really. One of the things I've heard a lot of people talk about, and I'm sure you've encountered it, you live in this world, is um, is, it, is it smart to name um, a new COVID variant after a mythical monster? Does it sort of assign some scariness to it, or or is that the point? No, it's not It's not really meant at all to be, uh, you know, uh, to cause alarm per se. It's really meant to provide uh, a way of for people to recognize which thing we're talking about. Yeah. And to, you know, uh, allow us to kind of keep track of what's going on. This, this is no longer the same as the thing we were talking about last time, which is exactly what the Greek letter naming system did initially. So yeah. you may remember, you know, Delta is not the same as what was there before. And Omicron is not the same as Delta. Uh, but since everything is now still called Omicron and uh, we have so many different variants, it becomes very challenging to communicate when something new arises, yeah. when something that we need to pay attention to arises. So they're certainly not meant to be scary at all. I mean, um, centaurs aren't particularly scary. Uh, XBB, the first XBB uh, was just called Griffin, which is the name of the sports team at my university. Yeah. Right? It's not, not particularly scary. Hippogriff was the, its immediate descendant. Um, XBB15, which is a third-generation XBB, uh, does have certain properties, at least in principle, that are concerning. And so we, you know, I had a discussion with some of the folks who 
are the ones tracking variants, you know, for uh, to a large part, and said, you know, what should we call this? And we just said, Kraken sounds pretty good. It, it'll probably be easy for people to recognize. Uh, let's use that. And then this particular one, I hate to use the pun, went viral. Uh, that you know, it did get attention, and I guess that was the point. Not not so much right. that you know, and, and most of this, I should say, most of the discussions I've seen using the nickname have been very reasonable. You know, what do we know? What do we not know? What are the, you know, potential uh, impacts? What are the, what's the likelihood of, the, of seeing something similar to other waves? You know, it's been, it's barely has, has uh, stimulated discussion, not panic. No, you're absolutely right. The, certain, certainly never the intent to cause panic. It's, it's to make people, uh, to give people a connection with something they can recognize outside of that really high-level name and the really, you know, specific name. Uh, last one, I'll let you go, and this is great information. I appreciate it very much. You say we're basically just spinning off variants of Omicron at this point. Have we stalled at Omicron? Is everything a version of Omicron, or is there all new variants emerging that we're not talking about as well? So, yep. So right now, everything that we're talking about is within that Omicron okay. group. As I say, you know, it, it's a decision to continue calling everything Omicron um, with the number of different lineages that we're seeing. So we're seeing a lot of new things evolving. We're also seeing, though, that many of those lineages are, are ending up with similar sets of mutations, specifically ones that make them good at escaping past immunity. So they're kind of settling on those same uh, sets of mutations, at least outside of, of places like China, where there's been a lot of past infection and, and vaccination. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we can't get something quite different. Uh, the mechanisms that lead to that are still in play. So it's it's thought that the major variants, Alpha, Delta, Omicron, those aren't descended from each other. They're pretty distant related, okay. distantly related. They are thought to have evolved within individual hosts who had a, a longer term persistent infection and the virus evolved within their body and then re-entered the population. The more infections you have, the more you have persistent infections. Uh, and so that could very well happen. XBB, the first XBB was a recombinant, meaning that two different variants, you know, swapped information and produced a third version. Um, recombination remains uh, an important mechanism, especially when there's a lot of infection and, and you know, co-infection with more than one variant. There's talk about possible movement into other species, and then it can evolve in those species and then move back. Yeah, uh, And also, we might see it evolving in a very different direction in a place like China, where you have massive numbers of cases, and they're not uh, subject, the variants that are there are not actually evolving, uh, are not likely to evolve immune escape in the same way, because there isn't that, that level of immunity. So they can evolve in a different direction. So there's a bunch of different mechanisms that could lead to something quite quite different that might actually get called Pi or Rho sure. or whatever yeah. the, the World Health Organization goes with next. Great information, Doc. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Exactly you're, what we're you're welcome. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.